School Guns, the podcast that tells you like it is. And uh, here we are at episode number 69, 69, been uh, doing podcasts for over a year now, and uh, actually been doing a little bit better than one a week, so, uh, but there are periods where we might go two weeks without one, and maybe get two in another week, but we've been averaging uh, basically uh, over one podcast a week. So, we got a lot of stuff today, and as you know, this podcast is essentially in three parts. One is basically political observations, the other is Second Amendment media, content creators, all that kind of good stuff about about firearms. And the third part, which is actually my favorite, are questions and answers, questions that I have gleaned and have been generously sent to me by uh, people who listen to the podcast, or I get them in conversations, or they're emailed to me, or, or some, some other way. But I gather these things up, and I attempt to uh, answer them as best I can. So, let's go uh, first. I'm going to do this real quick, because we got too much good gun-related stuff to talk about. But <laughs> Biden's VP pick. Man, is this guy in trouble or what? Um, it looks like the, the front runner, which was the one I thought would be his worst choice, and of course it turns out that's what he's probably looking at, was this Klobuchar, Amy Klobuchar, that kind of droll librarian type of person. You, you know, he saw her, in the, saw her in the debates, didn't make much of an impact. Saw her in the Kavanaugh fiasco, didn't make much of an impact. Well, apparently, because she's from a northern you know, Midwestern state that, you know, that was going to be a good political calculus to help Biden in the electoral college count and all the rest of it. But now, of course, with this George Floyd situation, she is, her her record as a prosecutor is being looked at to make sure that she's not part of the the, uh, horrible justice system that everybody is complaining about. So uh, he's in a real mess because if Klobuchar falls out, you know, we talked about how damaged Harris is, and, and she's got the same kind of problem with prosecutors. You just don't admit to Howard Stern that you were, you were smoking marijuana and inhaling, and uh, at the same time, you were putting people behind bars for doing the same thing. And she was effectively poleaxed uh, by Tulsi Gabbard for that. So she's, she's damaged. So that kind of leaves... Unless there's a dark horse out there that's really uh, somebody unknown that's gonna gonna make an appearance, really look in. It's gonna be Warren who makes Hillary Clinton look likable, or it's going to be Stacey Abrams who's who's another mess, and uh, you know he has boxed himself in, and so he's gonna have to take the best of the bad choices. And uh, that'll be a very interesting choice. But I think this is blowing up in his face. And this is, this you know, his candidacy is a disaster. And that's that's really all you can say about that. Okay, when I was uh, putting together the notes for this, and I start them usually six or seven days in advance, I thought the big story would be, hey, the pandemic. But that's been shoved basically off the front pages by, of course, this George Floyd thing, George Floyd being some sort of a guy, um, and, and we nobody knows any of the real details. What they know is 
is that there's a video that shows him apparently being abused during his arrest, where they were on top of him. Now, we don't know why this guy was on top of him, if it was resisting arrest, if there's something we didn't see. No, Nobody really knows that, except maybe the people who have all of the case information so far. But I think this, you know, I don't know if this is going to turn out to be another Zimmerman deal or another Michael Brown deal where this guy's made out to be a saint and then they find out he's not a saint and that he was actually doing something very bad and the the uh, actions which took his life are in some way justified. Although it's difficult to see how putting your knee on somebody's neck is justified. But if they're struggling and trying to hurt you... Um, you know, being under arrest, being taken under arrest, and it's never happened to me, but I've, I've seen it up close several times. You know, somebody's taking control of your life, and they're essentially depriving you of freedom for reasons that the, the state has. You know, you committed a crime or suspected of committing a crime, and they take you into custody. They take you into custody, which means you're being denied your freedom. And, you know, a lot of people react emotionally very poorly to that but if you act out physically the police will square you away they will they will handle people who resist arrest and you know in a lot of the big cities it is very fashionable to fight the cops and you know imagine if you're a cop and you do i don't know how many arrests they do a week but let's say it's five let's say they do one a day well if you get kicked in the shins every day or punched in the stomach or have somebody try to dislocate your arm or something in a struggle. I mean, you, you get tired of that. And that's what you see with these police applying force. I mean, they're trying to protect themselves. They don't like it. They don't want to get hurt in an altercation with somebody who's really amped up. So, you know, it's a bad situation. We'll see what happens. But right now, uh, of course, the violence and rioting is giving giving the forces of evil the kind of the the academic liberal cabal uh, the axis of evil it's giving them uh, you know a reason to try to turn the country into 1968 again because they're desperate to defeat Donald Trump they're desperate the uh, the Russia thing blew up in their face the impeachment thing blew up in their face he's handled the pandemic exceptionally well so now they're trying this so uh, we'll see how this all all shakes out and to talk about some of the things that are happening, I was not a witness, but I was right on the scene. If you saw the news, you know that um, there was an incident uh, at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And, of course, I worked there. And I was just coming off the post, and there's a bridge that goes over into Missouri. And I don't go across that bridge. I, I turn south. So just before the bridge, I turn south. Well, the bridge, it, it looked like a scene from the movie, out of the, movie the Blues Brothers. You remember the old John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd movie, and, and they're being chased through Chicago by, by 300 police cars. It looked like that. Emergency vehicles, police cars, the whole nine yards, just all over the place. There's flashing lights. I, I've never seen that many emergency vehicles in one place. Turns out some guy who was, you know, uh, a real troublemaker uh, pulled out an AR-15 and was just randomly trying to shoot cars. But he didn't get very far because one of the uh, soldiers from the post who had a great big pickup truck just ran this guy over. 
you know, ran him over. Even though the guy had an AR-15, the ultimate death weapon, and, the, you know, it can, it can kill stadiums full of people and all that, if you believe the liberals. But anyway, this guy with his AR-15 was put under the, under the bumper of this truck. And uh, I kept thinking, you know, if I was, if I was in uniform back, back in the day when I was in uniform, you know, nowadays, a, a lot of the soldiers, not all certainly, but a lot of them, you know, they drive pickup trucks. That's the vehicle of choice. In my day, it was kind of sports cars. So I don't think, I don't really think that me hitting a guy with an AR-15 with my Trans Am, first of all, I don't know why I would have done it because I don't want to mess up my <laughs> my ride, but uh, I don't think that uh, my Trans Am would have had quite the impact that this, uh, you know, large pickup with the big tires and the the uh, grill guard and all that. I'm, I'm sure that, that that's a lot more forceful blow than would have been the uh, kind of wedge shape of my, uh, of my Trans Am back in the day. So, uh, I did get one thing of saying, hey, you refer, refer to the uh, 1903 A3 Springfield as the Walmart Springfield. Why do you call it that? Well, I call it that because that's what it is. Um, the 03A3 was the 1903 Springfield, which was simplified for faster and cheaper production. And it was never going, it, and the M1 Garand had already been adopted, but for grenade launching, sniping, and as just a kind of a substitute rifle for training and, and other things, uh, these things were produced uh, until 1944, I think, they, they shut down production. But... Um, a lot of the milled parts of the 1903 Springfield had been changed to stamp parts. Uh, the stocks were a little more kludgy, you know, made made uh, you know not quite with the uh, the precision of the lathes, the Blanchard lathes that uh, they have at Springfield Armory, and uh, the rear sight had been moved back to the bridge and simplified. It's a very good sight, a very good rifle, but it is it is kind of cheaped out, just like some of the guns you see in Walmart, you know. If you buy, and I'll just say 1022, you buy one in Walmart, or you look at one in Walmart, and then go to a gun shop and look at one, you notice that there's always better quality wood and, and things on the one in the gun shop. It just is. And I don't know if Walmart gets some kind of special, if there's some kind of special deal where they say, hey, make the price on these as low as you can because our customers really aren't looking for the best looking stock in the world they're just looking for a 1022 and it's a utilitarian you know all the guns they sell are very utilitarian for the most part um you know you can i was i was uh, looking years ago a couple years ago they had remington 700 with a 24 inch barrel heavy barrel in 243 for like 300 bucks and i was actually thinking about that maybe it was longer than three years ago maybe it's four years ago and uh, I was thinking, hey, that'd be a great basis for some kind of precision rifle because 243 is a great caliber. And, and of course, I, once I kind of researched it, I, I abandoned that idea because the the rifling twist was wrong. I'd have to throw away everything, <laughs> everything except the uh, uh, the barrel, the bolt, and the action. And uh, I'd also have to have the uh, you know, if I kept the rifling twist, which was wrong, so even you know, none of it, none of it was going to work. So, but uh, you know, it was a it was a model that I had not seen in any other gun shop or at any other outlet. You know, uh, very 
kind of a matte black oxide finish and, and very utilitarian. So I think Walmart kind of gets some special deals because they're such a volume dealer uh, on on some guns. Now, the Henrys I've seen in there look like the Henrys everywhere, which I don't really dig. And I'll, I'll talk to him about Henrys a little bit later. Uh, one of the questions that came in uh, was about Bubba guns. Those are guns that have been Bubba'd. And that came from our friend of the podcast. And we've, we've been talking about these, and it's really more of the military rifles that come in, and there's always this horrid attempt to sporterize them. Now, back in the 50s, and I've, I've told the stories, you know, back in the 50s when these things were selling in, in barrels, they literally had them in, in uh, wooden barrels for $10 or even less sometimes. Uh, military rifles, you can understand why people would kind of go to them as an alternative. Um, and in the process, they would, you know, try to make them lighter and something they would want to carry around the woods, so they would cut the stocks. And, and, you know, some of them some of them were done professionally by gunsmiths and very, very good. Almost the rest of them in the vast majority were done at home and very poorly and on the cheap and they look horrible and you see them occasionally in the rack now you don't see them like you used to and that's partly because a lot of people have been restoring them back to their military configuration there is kind of a um, that is kind of a hobby it's not really cost effective you usually spend more more doing that and in the end you usually have more money tied up in it than if you just bought the rifle in its original condition but a lot of people enjoy doing that and so I can't say that uh, I blame them in the slightest so um, a lot of guns have been bubbed that way uh, and it's it's really depending on cheap firearms uh, when the SKS's came in and they were the the cheap thing on the market everybody wanted you know the you know get rid of the military stocks and put some kind of goofy stock or aftermarket stock aftermarket you know the 30 round magazines that that did not work usually very well and the uh, get a new <laughs> get a new action cover that had some kind of spot welded uh, mount with it the cheapest scope you can imagine on it and you know the, these things were these things were around and people were people were buying that stuff and putting it the good part about that is most of that could be reversed and it could be restored to its military configuration then of course the flood of Moise and Gantz came in, and a few people have have you know worked on those, but not nearly in the numbers. Even when they were forty nine dollar guns, not nearly in the numbers as they had previously. Just simply because there are, there are so many. By the time you even put a modicum of of uh, effort into these things to make them into a sporting rifle. You've tied up enough money that you can actually just buy a low-end sporting rifle, and there you go. You the work's already done for you. It's in the caliber you want, not the you know obsolete uh, caliber that's going to be hard to find sport harder to find find sporting ammo for. Here I am, kind of tripping over myself there, but it's it's a little more difficult sometimes to find uh, sporting ammo in some of these uh, more rare or you know, just uncommon military calibers. So the the Bubba guns were out there. Now another that that pretty much covers the rifles. I mean, you know, it it's uh, it's up to somebody 
whether they're beyond the point of no return, and that's usually dependent on parts. If you have a Italian Carcano, you know, finding things like barrel bands and, and bayonet lugs and sights and some of these other, all these little parts, sling swivels if, they, if it's got it or how, whatever that all is, finding those pieces is, is practically impossible. Uh, for something like a 1903 A3 where the barrel was not cut, the sights are still the same sights, hey, then, then it's a lot more possible. So, and even, even ones that have been drilled for a scope, there are people, it's not cheap, but there are people who can fill in those holes and reparkerize it, and, and they're undetectable. So, at least from the outside. I think if you look on the inside, you can probably, the inside of the action, you can probably tell. But, you know, you can, so you can restore a whole lot of things. There are people who, who can restore markings, you know, recut markings. That's all very expensive and not really something that happens for a... Uh, run-of-the-mill military rifle but yeah it can it can happen for sure um, then there's pistols and that's really where a lot of restoration comes in is pistols that have been modified and you know it's tough you know usually if the slide of a pistol like a 1911 has been milled for different kind of sights or um, if the front strap has been checkered and things like that are very very difficult if not impossible to reverse Another thing is the refinishing uh, guns that have been, you know, plated, uh, chromed, or uh, nickel plated. You know, there's, some of those things can be reversed. Some of them can't. Just the way it is. And uh, so restoring some guns back to original. A lot of times it's just original grips, you know. You find a 1917 revolver and it's got <laughs> those horrible franzite, you know, those uh, white horrid stag <laughs> grips that they had from the, I guess the 50s and 60s and and all that and, and you know so you can kind of get rid of those and, and get an original pair I, I have found a Colt Commando once had that had these, these terrible I've got them kicking around here someplace these terrible looking cheap stag grips they're not even the franzite ones they're not even the, the ones everybody would know so these horrible cheap things and fortunately I was able to find a uh, an original pair and hey it was just even use the same grip screw so good to go very easy fix to return that to uh, what it looked like when it was issued as opposed to uh, somebody's uh, definite uh, idea of what it should look like when it fell into their hands so Bubba guns you're seeing a lot less of them because frankly it's just so much easier to find at a low price point that are you know ideal and don't require the effort and in the calibers that people really want you know you can find inexpensive 6.5 creedmoor rifles made by savage and ruger and and that's kind of a still a hot ticket caliber so that's why you're not seeing nearly as many bubba guns as, as you have okay uh one of the things that came to my attention in guns of the old west magazine I guess it. I guess it is. But Gunsmoke, the TV series, has turned 65. Came on 65 years ago, and for a lot of people, you know, if you like westerns, you kind of grew up with Gunsmoke, either seeing the seeing them first run or in the uh, decades of syndication. And they made the show for like 20 years. They made it from 54 to 74, I think, and so. That's that's a lot of TV shows. They would put on like 26 episodes a year, so that's that's probably like 500 episodes. 
I, I remember reading, I think that somehow in the statistics, Matt Dillon shot 319 people <laughs> in Gunsmoke. Killed. I, I, these are kills. And seven of those were women. So so Matt Dillon was <laughs> one of the most prolific serial killers um, probably of the last 200 years. But um, anyway, that's it. And uh, Oh, yeah, and the other statistic was he was shot 56 times. And he was knocked unconscious like 19 times. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> that's the, that's Gunsmoke. But it's really good entertainment. And if you like James Arness, James Arness, you know, is a you know really interesting kind of guy. He he was about six foot seven, which was which was huge, and and still is huge. So kind of like Chuck Connors, who I think was six six. Um, you know, they had to, they had to kind of, uh, find big horses for him to, to ride. And they gave him the seven and a half inch Colt because, hey, you know, he needed a, a gun that wouldn't look just like a little toy in his hand. So it's very interesting how they did that. Um, and they also kind of gave him the Buscadero holster that was kind of proportioned to his size. Now, if I tried to wear, as a matter of fact, I did, I did, I had... I inherited it from my father for his seven and a half inch Ruger Super Blackhawk, a Buscadero holster. Okay, now I guarantee you, now I'm about a foot shorter than Matt Dillon. Well, I, ten inches shorter than he is, so it, it did not look good on me. I mean, it looked like it looked like I was carrying a rifle in a scabbard because it was hanging low. It was this large gun, and so you know, for my frame, a four and three quarter inch. Uh, or four and five eighths Ruger four and three quarter inch Colt is a much bench much better and much more proportioned uh, looking gun than a seven and a half inch Ruger Super Blackhawk, which looks like uh, you know it's making me look like a little tiny guy with this great big giant gun. So yeah, they they had that proportion for him and everything else. Now here's another interesting bit of trivia for for westerns before I get on to better stuff. Uh, you know, it's it's like on Bonanza, and it's like in Gunsmoke. You know how they're dressed? They wear the same clothes every episode. Every episode, they wear the same clothes. And I never really noticed that until I was reading about it. And the reason for that was, interestingly enough, a production cost. Not because costumes cost a lot, because they don't. But it's so they could use stock footage. So if you've got... You know, Matt Dillon, and he's wearing his vest, and he's wearing his white hat and all that. You know, you can use, and you need a shot of him just riding on a horse. Well, you can use some stock footage for that because he's dressed the same, so it'll fit It'll fit right in. It's not like he's wearing a, it's not like he's wearing a, a white hat in one scene and a black hat while he's riding his horse, and then magically he appears in a white hat again. It's to keep keep continuity. It's, it's uh so they could use a lot of this stock footage and older footage that they had. And and they did that in like almost all the westerns. That's why you always see them dressing the same, you know. It's it's a you know, it was a, a move of economics to get the to get the most out of the film they had shot. And I always thought that was uh, that was pretty funny. I actually saw one of the guns that James Arness one of the guns and gun belts that James Arness used in the uh, um, series Gunsmoke, and 
you know, the guy who owned it was, you know, he, it was actually on display in a large gun shop, and the gun shop owner owned it, and he, this was in Southern California, and so he went about explaining how he'd gotten it from the prop house and all that, and the question I asked was, well, wasn't there any kind of sentimental attachment? If you're James Arness and you've kind of had this, this is your last gun in gun smoke, you know, wouldn't you kind of like make a cash offer and say, hey guys, I, you know, what is this thing worth? I'll pay you for it. Just, just out of sentimental value. But apparently he was, you know, he was a very professional actor. It just the last day of filming. He took it off, handed it back to the prop master, and hey, that was it. Never inquired about purchasing it. And, of course, <laughs> the, uh, the the gun rental company or prop company, whatever, however that was that was handled, they knew they had a piece of gold right there because Gunsmith was an iconic, Gunsmoke, I should say, was an iconic series, and they knew that that would, that would be worth a lot of money. And this was year, this was a long time ago, but um, at the time, the guy had been offered, I think it was $12,000 for the gun and gun belt, and he, he didn't sell it. He just said, no, I'm going to hang on to it because it will appreciate, and I imagine it has. But it's not the only one out there. I'm sure that they use several guns um, out there. So, you know, there are probably several James Arness, Matt Dillon guns out there. Okay, the uh, other interesting thing in Guns of the Old West is one of the things I can never figure out. It's Henry's Magnificent 410 Mare's Leg. If you don't know what a Mare's Leg is, it is a lever-action rifle that is produced as a pistol, or in this case, a shotgun, any other weapon, and it doesn't have a full stock. It just has kind of a pistol grip stock, and it has a short barrel, and this one shoots 410, but it looks like a lever-action. It looks like it holds probably four or five cartridges. You know, why anybody would want that, I don't know. 410 ammunition is expensive, more expensive than 12-gauge and harder to find. Uh, its prowess as a defense load has been pretty much debunked because, you know, yeah, okay, it can shoot three buckshot pellets, but is that really great? Um, they, they, there have been a couple of these mare's legs made by other companies. I think Rossi makes one, and I don't know who makes another one, but uh, I know Rossi has made one. And they, they come from the Steve McQueen show, the old uh, Wanted Dead or Alive, where he carries this <clears throat> sawed-off Winchester 92. And uh, the funny part is he carries like a bandolier with 4570 rounds in it, whereas the 92 is always chambered for like 4440, a, a pistol cartridge. So, but, so they, have, they put the rifle rounds in his bandolier because that, that looks more impressive. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really know. They're, they're not comfortable to shoot. They're not particularly accurate. Uh, you have to wear some kind of a contraption of a holster. Again, you're wearing kind of a cut-down carbine um, scabbard as a holster. Yeah, I mean, outside of just novelty effect and costuming, I can't think of anything I would want this thing for. Um, you know, is it, is, is it a good snake gun? Well, yeah, it'll kill a snake. A 410 will kill a snake. But I don't know that, that you want to you traipse around with this thing uh, sp specifically for that. And it's not a great defensive gun. It's not a rifle. It's not a pistol. It's kind of a, a short shotgun that's any other weapon. So... They've got that out there, and I think they want, like, they want almost a K for it. So, uh, you really got to want one, I guess, to, to go out there and get it. Okay, we now have the favorite part, which is 
questions and answers. And these questions, as I said before at the top of the podcast, come from everyone. And uh, there's things that we've gleaned. And some of our loyal listeners, and there's a few out there, um, they have gone ahead and sent this in. And this is from Clown Bear, who says, Is the 40s Smith & Wesson a failed cartridge? Especially given the police trade-ins and the poor performance of 9mm and 45 ACP. So that's a very interesting question. Uh, is it a failed cartridge? Is it failed? And I would say it's, it's as good as it ever was, and it, it, it fulfills the design that it had, which was to make a better cartridge than 9mm, but have more capacity than a 45. By better cartridge, I mean a more powerful cartridge than the 9mm with greater capacity than the 45 ACP. So it really does that. And I've, uh, I've said here several times on the podcast that, hey, if you're not planning on doing a whole lot of shooting, but you're going to do some, the police trade-in 40 Smith & Wessons are good guns to get because they're they're powerful. They've got decent capacity. There's a lot of good things to be said about them. Um, when you're really talking about cartridges, though, and defensive firearms, it really you have to talk not only about the gun and the caliber, but you have to talk about the ammunition you use. And the the argument now for the nine millimeter, and I've kind of stressed this before, but very quickly, um, is that the improved ammunition that's available now makes it the equal of the 40 Smith and Wesson and 45 ACP, and you get increased capacity on top of those two uh, guns that are that are. If you had three guns that were identical, but in those three calibers, you would have more ammunition capacity in the. Um, 9mm version, so therefore why would you want the other two if, because for all intents and purposes, they're equal. But I still believe that not everybody carries, uh, who carries a 9mm carries the best defensive ammo. And I think another reason that it's gone back and it's, that reasoning has been used is you know, it's the 9mm guns are easier to shoot. It's easier to gain hits. And it's easier for people who um, may be smaller in stature, and that goes to you know diversity and um, recruiting different genders. You know that whole thing. You know if you've got a lot of uh, females in your department, well then you know an easier to shoot gun might be something that you find advantageous. You know, um, I think that if you equip an ap- department with nine millimeters, that their qualification scores are probably higher than if they have 40 Smith and Wesson. And just looking at that, you can say, well, that helps indemnify us against some of these shooting incidences where lots of rounds are fired, but not a lot of hits are achieved, and and so on. So, I, you know, the movement towards 9mm has been driven by other fact, factors other than if total effectiveness. But, you know, yes, the, the very best ammunition. And, and a lot of people really can't identify what that is. I mean, you go into a gun store. How do you know what is really good 9mm ammo and what may not be? Because there's so many conflicting tests. So that's always another another issue. They say, well, with these improved loads, okay, which improved loads are they? And what is the proof that they that they actually are? So, and it also goes to the people who are primarily the gun gamers who essentially having a larger cartridge and a more powerful cartridge doesn't really 
mean much to them um, because there's no real reason. I mean, it, it just doesn't matter. And uh, to people who are martial artists who say, well, if everybody's carrying FMJ ball ammo, 45 is kind of a no-brainer because it cuts a bigger hole. And, you know, that's there's truth to that. That's that's very true. 9mm has a higher velocity, so, you, you know, it, it goes on and on. And this has been a huge... Huge, huge, huge debate for years, decades in in gun magazines, and it and it goes back to um, I do know that the I do know one survivalist guy, and he lives on his own little compound down in the Ozarks. Everybody carries a Glock, and they all run FMJ. And I've talked about that on a previous podcast where that's probably not a great solution for that kind of environment. And, you know, and also then to say you can't talk all this smack about 9mm being the equal of everything else if you're shooting FMJ. I just don't think you can. You know, it used to be the, the, <laughs> the older version of this, which was funny, was all these guys who had 357 Magnums back in the 70s and 80s. You know, I, I shoot 357 Magnum, blah, blah, blah. Almost every one of them was stoked with 38s. I mean, so really, they weren't carrying a 357 Magnum. They were carrying a 38 Special because the gun is only what the ammunition is. You know, if if uh, you're carrying a 22 Short, then that's what you <laughs> that's what gun you really have. You're shooting a 22 Short, not a 22 Log rifle. Um, so it's 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 all about that perception. I I tend to think that. Uh, 40 Smith & Wesson, I think, could make a comeback. It could make a comeback. I, In fact, I remember uh, before, when the War on Terror started, they there was a, a lot of discussion about should the Army just develop a 40 Smith & Wesson fire, you know, adopt a 40 Smith & Wesson firearm because um, that's what all the police were using. That was effective, and it was better than 9mm, so why wouldn't you adopt it and use it? And now the pendulum has gone back the other way, where everybody's running towards 9mm and away from the 40, especially. 45 ACP will always have a, a a niche. But the 40 will come back. The 40 will come back, just like in the days when all the police trading revolvers were around, and people were saying, well, who wants one of those? Now they're, now they're gold. Um, I do think that the uh, 40 Smith & Wesson will make a comeback. It is not a failed cartridge, our expectations of what a cartridge is and should be has changed. And uh, that's the interesting part. It's, it's not so much that it's a failed cartridge, but it's that our expectation has changed. So that's what I think about that. And I think 40 is actually a really good choice in many ways. Okay, here is another question that was sent in. And a guy emailed this to me. What countries' firearms slash guns are the most underrated? And you go, huh, you know, who gets, who really does not get, I mean, certainly it's not Belgium, because they make very, very high-end, nice guns. Um, you know, now there are, you know, especially in the 19th century, there were a lot of cheap Belgian guns, but we're really talking about the, the good stuff that any country can make. I would say that uh, Czechoslovakia has always been very highly rated, and now now it's the Czech Republic, and I guess Slovakia is doing their own thing. But um, so Czechoslovakia, before it broke apart, is, has a very very 
good reputation check weapons are very highly thought of. Um, Italian weapons are highly thought of. Uh, French weapons are generally not well thought of. And so some of their some of their stuff is, is kind of underrated, but it's some of their stuff is kind of quirky design too. Not not that it's a bad design, but it's kind of a one-off. Nobody really copies French designs. They don't really they don't really uh, set trends or anything. They kind of have these these guns that are just kind of unique and independent. So some people love them, some people don't. So I would say that they're not underrated. But the country that immediately comes to mind immediately and these guys produce great stuff is Spain Spain has produced really cool Mauser rifles up into the 1950s and 60s you know the FR8 was a very cool rifle that was kind of a 98 Mauser in 7.62 NATO and uh, you know had a lot of modern features to it you know if you gotta if you gotta have a bolt action the FR8 was a, a good gun to have, and they took an earlier model and made the FR7, which they kind of modernized and all that. I think that was their, their like their 93 Mauser or 95 Mauser, um, but they produced those things. They had they had factories in Spain that produced them. Um, they've always produced, a, you know, a pretty extensive line of handguns. I mean, Astra handguns are excellent. You know, they made copy. They made a good copy of the broomhandle Mauser, which was very high quality and a very excellent gun. They made, you know, the 400, the 600, the 300, and what was the, the, the one was called the Condor, which was the last one they tried to make in the 70s, but that, the design was pretty much passe by then. But, the, you know, the Astra 400, 600, 300, those are great guns. Germans bought a lot of them, bought all three of them, in fact. Um, let's see. And, of course, my favorites... My favorites are the stars. I actually have two stars. One is a BM, which I really like. It's like a little Colt Commander 9mm type of gun. You know, it doesn't have the grip safety, but in practically every other way, it's a Colt, Colt Commander style gun in 9mm. Very nice. And then I have a, uh, a Star Super which is a 9mm Largo. looks very reminiscent of a 1911, but it's got some very cool features. The takedown features of it are really awesome. It's got a takedown lever that's very awesome. So I would say Spain, because they produce weapons, they modify, they produce, they produce good proven designs, and then they kind of modify them or redesign them uh, in very innovative ways. So I think the most underrated gun country is Spain. And I, I know on the commercial and, and civilian side, they can make some very, very nice custom guns. You know, maybe not the equal of the English guns, but, but uh, very, very nice guns. So I would say Spain is the kind of the undiscovered place. And a lot of Spanish guns um, are essentially pretty, pretty economical to buy. You know, you can, you can find them. They don't command a premium because they're not all that well thought of. But they're very interesting historically. You can get, uh, you know, ruby pistols, the ruby 32. Not a great pistol, but they functioned. France bought a lot of them, then uh, sold them to Finland. So you can get some that have some very, very interesting 20th century military use and, and probably, you know, markings and other things that, that would make them a, a pretty interesting gun, well beyond just being a uh, um, kind of a, a 
modest 32 caliber gun. Okay, next next question. What is your list of history what ifs with guns? Now, I've talked about this, and and, uh, and so one guy finally said, "What is your what is your list? You always seem to have these what ifs. So how many of them have you really got?" So I had to sit down and kind of think. And the first one is one of my favorites. What if there had been a 303 SVT 40 or SVT 41? Um, what if the British had gotten somehow the British get their hands on the uh, data package and examples of an SVT 38? You know the Russian 7.62 by 54 rimmed semi-automatic, very cool rifle. The Soviets kind of tweaked it, developed it into the SVT 40. But if the British had had it, they could have easily reworked it for 303 British. And they would have had a, a rifle that, that would have put them in the ballpark with the big boys, the Soviet Union, the United States, and Germany, who had, who had all three had developed and extensively used in combat semi-automatic rifles. They, they, could have been, they could have been in that club, but as it was, they were not. So uh, they, they stuck with the, they had the Enfield. But if the SVT had, had uh, somehow come to their attention and they could have produced it in a timely enough manner, would that have been, how cool would that have been? Uh, that, that would have been a very, very interesting, um, very interesting twist in history. And it makes you wonder if, would the L1A1, the, their version of the FAL, had ever been adopted? If they already had this, would they have, you know, kind of followed this down the road and maybe, maybe, uh, re, you know, built a 7.62 NATO version and, and all that. It's very interesting to, to postulate where that, where that would have gone. So the first what if is a 303 SVT. Okay, the next one, the next what if, and this is you gotta you got, almost gotta put your you know your kind of your diesel punk alternative history hat on. And this is a 276 Grand, which was the original chambering for the M1 Grand prototypes, with detachable 15 round magazines. And you think about that and you think, hey, that's you know, they tried to, they, ah, let's go, let's start. They had the 276 Grand. It was kind of pretty lightweight, had kind of a metal handguard over the top, and, and you know, looked like, had a, had a front barrel band, looked kind of like a Springfield one. Um, but it was, a, it was a Grand, it worked like a Grand, but it took a 10 shot 276 cartridge, you know, to a uh, end block clip with 10, 10 rounds in it that were 276. So, that was a pretty interesting. That was pretty interesting. So you know, there are a lot of people who said, "Well, what if we'd been in World War II with that? Would would it have made a difference? Uh, would would guys would it would it have saved lives to have that two extra shots in certain situations?" And you know, some people will also say, "Hey, look, you know, the thirty out six is so much more powerful that maybe that saved lives too. So that's probably a wash." Um, why was that decision even made anyway to put it into 30 out six? And the answer is the the military was so starved, absolutely starved for funds in the 20s and 30s that we had stockpiles of 30 out six cartridges. We had machine guns for it. We also had ARs. We had Springfield rifles. Changing changing over um, would have essentially made a bunch of that obsolete, and we would have had to. Either either you're going to have a whole bunch of different cartridges to to uh, kick out and and have in your logistics system because we had 45 ACP for you know what turned out to be 
pistols and submachine guns, then you're going to have 30 carbine, and then, you, you know, you would have added another cartridge there, or you would have had to redesign, you know, a bunch of weapons. And the fact of the matter is, not, it wasn't just the army. It was basically, we had 50 cals, but we also had, we also had uh, a lot of aircraft machine guns and things in the 20s and 30s were also 30-06. You know, we didn't kind of get rid of them until the B-17 and a few of the heavy bombers came out, and they had 50 caliber guns, and then we put 50 caliber guns on our fighters, and, you know, but a lot of, when World War II started, both the British and the Germans um, used a lot of rifle caliber machine guns still, kind of a holdover from the First World War. So all that would have had to some of that would have had to change and, and all that. We had the capacity. 30-06 was going to be the cartridge. And when they made that decision, um, that's just the way it was. But the 15-round magazine, um, as opposed to the 10-round, if the 10-round end block clip in 276 is a wash, well, then what would have been a game changer? And the game changer would have been a detachable, like an M1 carbine, had a detachable 15-round magazine. Okay, you have a detachable 15-round magazine for... Uh, the Garand, you know, there you go. You, you've got it right there. Um, the gun was lighter anyway, and, you know, detachable magazine technology was there, and it would have definitely increased the firepower. So, you know, that would have been a very, very interesting deal. And especially when they tried during the war, you know, they knew this was, this was going to be the way because they tried to modify the Garand for detachable magazines and every one of those was an abject failure because the 30-06 cartridge was just too big and by the time you got a detachable magazine grand it started weighing almost as much as a BAR which we already had anyway and was too heavy for an individual rifleman so um, you know we stuck with the regular grand kind of shelved those those deals but had it been in a 276 cartridge detachable 15 round magazine would have been uh, a reality so, that's one. Uh, the other one. What if Curtis LeMay... We talked about this last podcast. What if... And also, I'll just do it quick. What if Curtis LeMay had seen a prototype Mini-14 instead of the prototype AR-15 when he went to the picnic and decided that uh, the Air Force needed a new small arm, a new rifle, and that was going to be it? You know, what effect would that have had on small arms development uh, would it have been seen as just, hey, this is a great refinement. It's already the Garand system we know and love, and it's in this very effective cartridge, and we can have 20 and maybe even 30-shot magazines. Certainly the uh, technology for that existed. In reality, the Mini-14 wasn't designed until a decade later, but it still would have been very interesting because it, it could have happened. You know, there were a couple other, you know, initiatives of... Uh, I think Melvin Johnson, the guy from the, the Johnson rifle of World War II, um, he tried a 5.7 caliber a conversion for the M1 carbine, which really, you know, it kind of turned a few heads, but nobody gave it any serious consideration. So, you know, that, that would have been an interesting what if. The, uh, the early version Mini-14 versus the AR-15 Proto. Yeah, interesting. Okay, what's another what if? Ooh. And this goes to a later question, but, you know, the Egyptian Rashid rifle, 7.62 by 39, kind of a, 
it's detachable, but it's meant to be used as a fixed 10-round magazine folding bayonet. Conceptually the same the same gun as the SKS. Conceptually. Their construction and design are different, but it it's basically fulfills the same role in about the same envelope. What if the Egyptian Rashid had had genuine detachable magazines where they issued six or seven of them to each soldier and they'd been 20 round 20 round mags that would have been that would have been kind of a game changer would have changed it from kind of this clunky semi-automatic that you know you got to reload with the stripper clips through the top just like the SKS and a real pain it would have been it would have changed it to a you know kind of a cool um, maybe semi-automatic only but a very very cool rapid fire gun would have been would have been very very uh, interesting. Um, he uses the same design as it's, as a matter of fact. I'll cover it in another question. So, but it's a very cool design. But uh, um, yeah, that would have been that would have been something that probably would have got captured the Israelis' attention. As it was, there were so few Rashids made that uh, uh, they really didn't have any impact. But if they had been more widespread and had a better feeding system, uh, as far as just Good detachable magazines of higher capacity could have been a game changer could have been an interesting what if those are about the only ones i can think of the only the, well there's one more and, and this was has to be what if custer had taken his gatling guns uh with him could they have saved him at little bighorn and the answer is i have no earthly idea uh most that i've read about you know there's a lot of discussion on that and the, the bottom line was the gatling guns were used as an artillery piece, they were on carriages like artillery and all that, far too slow to keep up with Custer. So if even if by some miracle he did have them, uh, I don't know they would have employed them like machine guns to repel the the attack of the Indians. And I, I'm not sure that the the attack of the Indians was was of such you know, they they used stealth and got up close enough that I don't know that the uh, Gatlings would have had enough firepower to uh, to stop it at close range as as the attack was initiated at such close range. So I don't think they would have helped him, but but hey, you you, you just never know. So the what if of of Custer, what if he had had? Uh, well, there was really nothing better at the time. So, but if he had had an early Maxim gun, which didn't come out till about ten years later, well, that that might have helped him. Might have helped him a little bit. Okay. Oh, here's another one. Why is the M1A, you know, in parentheses, M14, not more popular? Is it becoming unpopular and obsolete? Uh, the answer to all those... <laughs> I'll go with the last question first. Is it becoming unpopular and obsolete? The answer is no and yes. <laughs> it's, it's or yes and no. You could you could put it either way. I, I think it's its popularity has suffered because there are a lot more seven six two NATO designs out there. AR tens are out there. Uh, Thirty years ago, they really weren't out there. They really weren't a thing. Um, and there have always been you know somebody making a BM fifty nine kind of kind of gun here and there. Um, and of course, there's been the G three and. and its clone iterations, the FAL and its clone iterations. But for, 
years, for several decades, it was the it was the gun of choice for service rifle shooting, but it got dethroned by the AR platform, the M16, basically the A2 platform, dethroned it, and it's just and they and now the gap between the two has gotten even wider with the introduction of of uh, optical sights and all these things. The 14 just can't keep up, so. Although it's as good as it ever was, the purposes for what civilians use it for has probably narrowed, and uh, so therefore it is not as popular. The other thing that has gotten its popularity and diminished it is the fact that a lot of the 30 caliber guys who were kind of the Vietnam generation and before, who you know liked 30 caliber service rifles and did not like ARs, you know, that that population, that group has shrunk and, and has, it is not nearly as influential as they used to be. So the people who venerated the M14 are vanishing. They're the vanishing Americans, the vanishing M14s. And, uh, and as a lot of newer shooters have not grown up shooting service rifle in the M14 era, they're not as used to it, not as familiar with it. And uh, therefore, they they kind of pick it up, and it's since it's not like an AR, it's something they don't like. You see that on in-range TV all the time. They don't like it. They they basically crap all over it, and they crap all over the FAL and all the rest of it. And uh, you know, they they did not grow up in the era where those rifles were seen as as being very very useful, and and were seen basically in frontline service. Um, the other, the other side of that coin is most gun games now do not stress power. So, um, you know, a hit with a 7.62 NATO, if that equals a hit with a 5.56 on a steel target, well, the 5.56 is a more efficient cartridge to use. It's an intermediate cartridge. It's got less recoil. The platform it's in has less recoil because it does not have that traditionally shaped stock like the 14 does. So, therefore, it, it's, it's, it's narrowed, but it is still a great weapon. And uh, I, I can tell you, I, I've said this before, when I was in Iraq, anybody who could get their hands, their grubby little hands on an M14, uh, would, would did so. Uh, but fortunately, it was kind of only given to people who uh, had a specific need for it, who were, you know, snipers and uh, um, designated marksmen. But everybody else would have liked to have had that weapon because it has the range, it's... It's one of those weapons that's it's just so good in many understated ways that you have a lot of confidence in it. It's easy to use and it's and it's great. And they, the uh, gun media content creators, whatever, they can crap all over it. But the fact of the matter is, um, in the cold light of dawn, out in Indian country, uh, an M14 is a very nice thing to have, and and their opinions cannot change that. Okay, do 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 do. Oh, here is another great question. Why did countries like Russia, Italy, and France stay with their older rifle designs instead of upgrading like the U.S. did from the Krag to the Springfield? Okay, that is a great question. Okay, like the first generate. Why did countries stay basically through the end of World War II with their first generation? smokeless powder, small-bore military rifles. And there's a whole lot of reasons why they did. 
but I'll so but rather than go into why they did, I'll go into why the United States did not. And that was because we had the the combat experience of the Spanish-American War. Uh, the Spanish-American War was a big deal. And uh, although it was between an, an emerging world power, the United States, and this crumbling, decrepit, uh, colonial, what, what had been a former superpower. You know, Spain had been a superpower for centuries. I mean, um, we kind of discount Spain, but at one point, you know, the Spanish empire, if you will, throughout the New World and all the way over to the Philippines and, and uh, uh, you know, in a lot of other places, a few little places in Africa and all that, yeah, it rivaled the British Empire. You know, in, at the, if you took the Sp Spanish Empire at its height, the British Empire at its height, uh, Spain, is, Spain is a big deal. But by the time the Spanish-American War comes around, Spain is crumbling. Uh, the the combat experience was such that while the Krag was a good rifle, and it was certainly a huge improvement over the Trapdoor Springfield, had we had to fight the Spanish-American War with the Trapdoor Springfield, that would have been a disaster. And as it was, some volunteer units had to use it. You know, they used it. and uh, But fortunately, we had cr enough Krags so that kind of everybody had a Krag, so, uh, especially the front-line troops. It was good, but it was not great. And and the, an advantage was seen, the Spanish 7mm Mauser, you know, the 93 and I think 95s too, but I think it was 93. Um, they, they were very good rifles and they had that quick, quicker loading system. You just didn't throw a handful of these rimmed cartridges into this, you know, kind of cumbersome box thing on the side of the receiver like you did in the crag. You just kind of loaded it through the top. That was clearly going to be the way. And in fact, after the end of the war, uh, they realized that the Krag had given decent, but, you know, the Krag did not have a future. The Krag was a design dead end, and they saw it. They saw it clear as a bell, and they knew they needed something competitive with the Mauser, so they set about developing it. Uh, they did have a few laughable attempts of trying to figure out how to do the clip load of the Krag through the top. Of course, those were, those were comical failures, and so they decided to... Um, take some Spanish Mausers and a few other guns and kind of design a new rifle that would not only not only would it incorporate all the improvements that they desired from from the uh, experience of the Spanish-American War but it would also be a universal rifle so you wouldn't have rifles and carbines you would just have one length of rifle and that would be easier to produce and and uh, it'd be you know training would be easier everything would be easier and they came up with a 1903 Springfield which was an epic design just a great design so we did that but it was primarily the the experience of the Spanish-American War combat experience um, other countries did not, if they had the combat experience, they just didn't use it. Now, Britain had fought the Boer War about the same time as the Spanish American, we fought the Spanish-American War. And they came to some similar conclusions, that essentially the, the uh, Lee-Enfields they had, I think they were Long Lees, uh, basically uh, weren't, weren't, were outranged by the Boers' Mausers. You know, the, those, those Dutch farmers... Uh, had bought a bunch of seven millimeter Mausers, 
and uh, they had a range. They had a range advantage, and they also loaded faster, and they were kind of uh, a lighter, flatter trajectory cartridge, which made it easier to hit at longer range. The 303 was not particularly a great long-range cartridge. It was, you know, kind of borderline adequate. So their experience was they needed something like a Mauser and something in a... They, they needed something like a 7mm Mauser. So they developed the Pattern 13 rifle, which was in a um, 276 cartridge, you know, very similar to what we did with the Grand, which I was talking about. And uh, basically they were developing that... And of course, you know, 1913, what does that tell you? Because 1914, there's, gonna, there's a war, but they don't see it coming yet. And uh, the Pattern 13 had some real problems. It kept burning out barrels and, and, and doing a few things. So while they, were, while they were basically noodling around with that design, trying to get it to work, um, the war starts, and it's like, hey, forget it. We, we just got to go with the Lee Enfield. And to their surprise, they find that the Lee Enfield performs exceptionally well in trench warfare and on the European continent. And they wind up basically staying with um, iterations of that rifle through the 1950s. And India actually has a, iterations of that rifle through the 1970s. So, but they were going to develop a rifle that that would have that was based on their combat experience in the Boer War just got just got sidetracked by World War One. So the the Russians, yes, they fought the Japanese in the Russo Japanese War, and I don't think they really saw any problems uh, with the Moise and the Gant. It it was it was you know solid. It it was dependable and and it it worked. It worked. So I don't think they saw anything with that. But the Italians and and especially the French. Uh, they just stuck with that, you know. They just stuck with their earlier rifles. Now, the French kind of had the Lebel also. And it wasn't until they came out with the Moz 36 that they really uh, started to, you know, they kind of got the clue that the Lebel was long in the tooth. And really, that's not what they wanted to carry into another world war. Although they wound up having to do it. But uh, they had to use, they didn't have enough Moz 36s. So they wound up using uh, Berthiers and Labels in the Second World War also. So that's the reason that they, they didn't upgrade. They Either they didn't have the combat experience uh, that would have just kind of boosted or accelerated de development. Another real reason is is because, you know, you, you look at the time frame. Uh, if you develop, if you adopt the M91 Moisin Nagant rifle, Okay, you adopt it in 1891. It's going to take years to, to fully field into the system. You're not going to turn around and dump it because some because Germany has come out with a better rifle. You know, Germany has kind of sat through these iterations of Mausers, kind of looking at them, and then when the 98 comes out, that's what they that's what they replace their 88 commission rifle with. But that's because they kind of originated the design and they were at the the forefront of of these incremental improvements that the Mauser design kept making. But if you're the Russians, hey, you, you go ahead and you, you field, you're ready to, you're producing this rifle, you've just fielded it, you're not just going to dump it because there's a shinier object in the water that you want to go chase. I mean, it's like the decisions you make, you have to live with sometimes for decades because you can't just, they can't afford to replace military equipment. And all of the European armies had, had budget 
constraints. And so that's another reason that uh, people don't upgrade is budget constraints are definitely a big deal. Okay, here is another question, and we're starting to starting to run a little bit long, so I'll try to speed this up. What is your opinion of the AG42B Hakim and Rashid rifles? And if you know what those are, you can go ahead and uh, don't know what those are. Go ahead and Google them. Um, you go ahead and uh, Google Hakim H A K I M, and you'll see it's this long, clunky eight millimeter rifle. It started for as a Swedish design in six point five. And, you know, after World War II, everybody, they knew bolt guns weren't, weren't getting it. Okay, bolt guns were over. And so everybody was jumping after every semi-automatic design they could they could get their hands on. Um, Egypt was not at this time a real a kind of a client state of the Soviet Union or a beneficiary of their very, very generous uh, um, military assistance programs. So they had to go to the Swedes. They, they, they found a design. They, they basically said the Swedes make this. They're willing to sell it to us, and they're willing to help us produce it. And lo and behold, that's what happened. Uh, turned out to be the problem was the Egyptian army used 8mm Mauser. The rifle had to be redesigned, and it is a big, clunky rifle. A lot of fun to shoot, but big and clunky. And man, if you've ever seen the bolt go forward on those... Uh, you know, it makes you want to count your fingers because you do not ever want to have your finger get in between that bolt and where it's where it's going because it goes at very high speed and it's very large and it will hurt. So it's a very kind of you know, lo and again, it's one of these things with a fixed magazine that you load through the top with stripper clips. You know, the magazine charger clips. So you want to make sure that you're uh, that definitely uh, the parts of you are out of the way when it goes to chamber that uh, that round. And the Rashid is the same thing, except it's in 7.62 by 39. And it's a much, much more pleasant rifle, much nicer. So uh, the Hakim, though, is a, is a hoot to fire. I mean, it is, it, it, you get the feeling that you're shooting something even larger. You know, it's like it's like you're shooting something, you know, 20 millimeter or something. It's it's kind of that that kind of experience. Um, I personally think it's, it's just, if you want to have fun shooting military rifles, those three rifles, the AG42B Jungmann, the Hakim, and the Rashid, they're all the same basic design, and they all work the same, but they are fun to shoot. I mean, they're very, very, very uh, eclectic and uh, a very, very fun rifle to, to fire. But their design is really clunky, long action, and like I said, man, I, I don't know the... <laughs> I, I, you do some serious screaming if your finger got caught in there. Okay, here's uh, another question. Was adopting the 8mm Mauser a mistake for Germany? The 8mm Mauser cartridge. Was that a mistake? Well, I don't know. I don't know what their rationale was. It's a great machine gun cartridge. And, you know, they could use it on aircraft. And they even used it at the beginning of the Second World War in aircraft. But I always think that the uh, 7.63 Argentine and the 7mm Mauser were much better cartridges and would have um, allowed Germany maybe to develop some lighter automatic weapons quicker, i.e. during the First World War. And, uh, you know, I think it just would have uh, made made their life easier. I In bolt guns, I don't enjoy the 8mm Mauser that much. I mean, I just don't enjoy it. It's got, it's got some recoil to it, and there's some... 
there's some really weird ammunition out there. There was that surplus Turkish ammunition, and that thing would throw a 198-grain bullet at about 2,900 feet per second. So you're talking that, you know, you need to eat your Wheaties if you're going to fire a bunch of those. You definitely need to have your Wheaties. Okay, and here's our last question, and it's actually the inverse uh, kind of an obverse or inverse of the uh, question that we just had. Was the 30-06 a mistake for the USA? Was it a mistake to, to adopt the 30-06? A 63-millimeter long cartridge case with a 30 caliber, you know, 150 or 170 grain bullet. Was that, was that a mistake? Was that too much? Well, it's turned out to be a fantastic cartridge in many ways. But I think... And this is very controversial, but I think it would have been a better choice to have a rimless version of the 3040 Crag, the 763 uh, Mauser, Argentine Mauser, or the 7mm Mauser. Those would have been, in some ways, better choices. And the reason why is because our machine guns could have been a little more compact and lighter. The BAR could have been a little more compact and lighter. A lot of that would have worked. However, it would not have been a great... It probably would not have been optimal for aircraft machine guns and some of the other uses that, that it was put through. So 30-06 is a great all-around cartridge. Um, but something less, a slightly less powerful and more compact, which is essentially what they went to with the 762 x 51 NATO, uh, and the only, and the reason that that's such a great cartridge is because revolutions in uh, powder design and manufacture for smokeless powder, more powerful propellants uh, had been made, so you could you could have a powerful cartridge that was smaller and give you the same performance. You get the you could get thirty out six performance in several bullet weights uh, with the seven six two by fifty one NATO, the three hundred eight Winchester. So the um, so I think that, you know, they could have gone a little bit earlier. They, the Krag never had a problem with power, so why do you need something more powerful? It, it wasn't bad. It would have made, I, I don't know how it would have performed in aircraft machine guns. Same thing with the 7mm Mauser. I don't know that those would have been a great idea, especially in the First World War. .30-06 was really great at that. So, you know, it's, it's interesting, but I think for infantry rifle use, yes, something, something a little smaller and less powerful um, could have done a great job and had some other benefits. Well, this is it for another edition of Old School Guns. Remember, you can always send us comments. Please like us and follow us on uh, Podbean. And my email address is kbmakel at aol.com. And you can always send comments or questions there, or you can do it on the Podbean system too. That's really where I get most of them. So, anyway, uh, this is Old School Guns out. <laughs>